morning. We're glad you can be here today. God has given us a beautiful Lord's Day morning to meet. We're grateful for that, grateful for the privilege, the opportunity to come together. We're continuing today our study of biblical perspectives on the Middle East and all the uh, conflict and the things that are going on there and a lot of things that are being said about that that really uh, are in conflict with what Scripture says. We've tried to point some of those out and to try to gain a better understanding, a biblical understanding of what is going on in the Middle East and, and how we can think about it, how we can pray about it, uh, what we should be doing as followers of Jesus Christ in regard to it. In the 1962 film, Lawrence of Arabia, in one of the early scenes in the movie, T.E. Lawrence is being led across the desert by an Arab guide to meet with uh, the Arab prince Faisal uh, because he, uh, Lawrence is a military attache for the British Army and the British and the Arabs are joining together and battling the Turks. And so he's going out there to, to kind of oil the wheel and, and help make arrangements for that. And on the way, they stop at an oasis and the Arab guide draws some water out of the well. And uh, as he is uh, drinking from the water that he has drawn out for himself and for Lawrence, a shot rings out and the Arab guide falls dead. And Lawrence is naturally horrified and he looks up and he sees this man named Sharif Ali who comes uh, riding up on his camel and uh, Lawrence asks him, why did you shoot my friend? And he said, because he drank from my well. He said, this is my well, that's my water, and by drinking from it, he's become my enemy. Lawrence says, are you going to shoot me too? And he says, no, because you're my guest. Drink as much as you like. My friend, my enemy, my guest. What Lawrence was beginning to find out was the very complex, multi-layered nature of life in the Middle East. He's beginning to find out that it's not just about religion, although it is about that. He's beginning to find out that it's not just about tribal rivalries, although it is about that. He's beginning to find out that it was not just about who has rights to what, although it is about that. He's beginning to find out that the problems in the Middle East, even today, as they were then, are very, very complex. And that there are lots of grudges, and there's lots of history, and there's lots of reasons why people dislike one another. Thomas Friedman refers to the tradition of life in the desert to explain all this. He says, in such a lonely world, the only way to survive was by letting others know that if they violated you in any way, you would make them pay, and pay dearly. Does that sound familiar? If you violate them in any way, it will make you pay, and pay dearly. So you have all of these tribal conflicts, you have uh, religious conflicts, you have socioeconomic conflicts, but we need to understand that these tribal conflicts and tribal loyalties supersede all national and social boundaries. You can't say that because you live in this country, this is how you think, or this is who you regard as your friend, or who you regard as your enemy. It's a lot more complicated than that. The tribal loyalties and the religious loyalties are the various religious factions, and there are many. All of those things uh, come together, and they are, they are of greater importance 
than any national loyalty. And so you have all of these various groups, each with its own agenda, and each with its own list of grudges against all the others. And so there is, though, the religious divide that is at the root of all of it, of the Middle East conflicts, and we need to try to understand that as much as possible. Now, the religious divide is not simple either. It's not just Jews against Muslims. There are Christians who are in Palestine. There are Christians who are in Israel as well, and we need to remember that. Uh, and so there's that complexity, and then there's a complexity of the fact that there are within Islam and there are within Judaism multi-fact, multiple factions within each of those, and they do not agree with one another, and there are radicals within each movement who do not want peace. They don't want to make peace with the other side, and one of the reasons that the conflicts are always ongoing is because somebody is always ready to throw a bomb and make sure that the peace process comes to a halt. But it is basically uh, coming down to the antagonism between Jews and Muslims, and so we'll talk about that this morning. Now, it's kind of ironic that the antagonism is between Jews and Muslims because along with Christianity, Jews and Muslims are part of what are called the three Abrahamic faiths. The three Abrahamic faiths. What that means is, is that all three claim Abraham as a common ancestor. That's one of the things that all the three of them have in common. They're alike in significant ways, and that's one of them. Another commonality is that all three believe in one God. They are all monotheistic religions. And so Islam believes in one God, and Judaism believes in one God, and Christianity believes in one God. And partly because of this uh, common claim to Abrahamic faith. Now, the view of God, let me say, is not the same uh, I've been asked before, what about the, the God Allah that, is, uh, that Muslims worship? Is that the same as the God of the Bible? And most people want to readily say yes, but the answer is no. It's really not. If you look at what Muslims say about the God they believe in and what the Bible says about the God you and I believe in, is not the same God. But still, each uh, of the three religions believes in only one God. Back in 2002, I was asked to be a panelist on a three-member panel uh, sponsored by the Interfaith Council of Greater Richmond. The, council, uh, the panel consisted of a Muslim imam, uh, an Orthodox Jewish rabbi, and me. So we had a representative of Islam, representative of Christianity, representative of Judaism, and the title of the whole discussion was The Abraham Connection. Now, this was based on a book by that title, The Abraham Connection. And what they were looking for, the people who planned this, was that we would come together and we would talk about how much alike the three religions were. And the three religions are alike in some ways, but it's very easy to let the commonalities among Judaism, uh, Islam, and Christianity, it's easy to let the commonalities overshadow the fact that there are significant differences and that those differences cannot and should not be ignored. We should pay attention to them. And it turns out that the truth is that the Abraham connection is in some ways really the Abraham disconnection. It's really the Abraham disconnection because the common thread between Judaism and Islam particularly both begins and ends with Abraham. It isn't as though from that point forward they are marching together are similar and great similarity. In fact, that's where they part ways, is with Abraham. 
claiming that common ancestor. Let me explain that. The book of Genesis tells us how God made a covenant with Abraham and promised to make of him and his descendants a great nation. His firstborn son, you remember, was named Ishmael. This is the son born of Hagar. You heard the reading from Galatians 4. Uh, this, his firstborn son is named Ishmael, but Ishmael, even though he's the firstborn, normally would have been the uh, child who would have inherited a double portion and so forth, uh, was not to be the one through whom the promises made to Abraham would flow. They would not go through the line of Ishmael. God told him that. After Ishmael was born, he said, okay, this is great, but I'm going to bless Ishmael, but he is not going to be the child of promise. The child of promise will be your own son through, uh, through your wife, Sarah, and that's Isaac. And so Isaac, even though he's not the firstborn, is the child of promise. He is the child through whom the blessings will flow. So God had promised that he was going to make a great nation of Abraham, and that promise is going to be fulfilled not through Ishmael, but through Isaac. Genesis makes that very clear. But the Muslim version of that is radically different. The Muslim version says that it was Ishmael, not Isaac, who was the child of promise. That what happened was is that Judaism falsified the book of Genesis, rewrote it to make it sound as if God was making all these promises to be fulfilled through Isaac, when in reality, they said, it was through Ishmael. And that when Abraham took uh, Isaac, Genesis says in Genesis 22, up on the mountain to sacrifice your only son whom you love, Islam says, no, that wasn't Isaac, that was Ishmael that he was willing to sacrifice. And so you can see how they, the stories become completely different. And so they're believing, the Muslims are believing that the uh, story of Abraham and the story of the promises through Abraham and all the nations of the earth being blessed through Abraham is going to take place through them. Whereas Judaism says, no, it's going to take place through us. Well, the result is there are conflicting beliefs about some very fundamental issues. One of the most fundamental of those issues is who are the true people of God? Who are the true people of the covenant? With whom has God said, you are my people and I am your God? And through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And then the other question that goes right along with that is to whom does the land belong? Because you remember from Genesis 12 that part of the promise made to Abraham was that I'm going to give you this land and the promise was repeated several times, and Abraham was invited to go out and look as far as he could see, and God said, as far as you can see, I'm going to give you all of this land. I'm going to give that to all of your descendants. So the question then becomes, who are the right, the proper descendants of Abraham? To whom does the land belong? If you want to know what the conflicts in the Middle East are constantly about between Jews and Muslims, it's about that. It's about who owns the land. It's about to whom God gave the land. It's about to whom God promised the land. And here's the issue. Both of them feel not only a divine right to the land, but a divine mandate to have the land. That God has mandated them. God has commanded them to possess the land. And so you can see why they're not willing to give up part of it. They're not willing to say, okay, you take this piece and I'll take that piece because they're both convinced that God has given them the whole thing and that God has ordered them to take over the whole thing. And that's what they're trying to do. They're butting heads constantly, trying
trying to take over all of that land. So these basic differences, you see, uh, flow out of this common Abraham connection, but they become the Abraham disconnection because the story is interpreted so vastly differently by both sides. But here's the sad part of all this, folks. The sad part of it is that both Judaism and Islam are missing the main point. While they're fighting over these issues, they're failing to see the one to whom the promise to Abraham pointed. The promise to Abraham pointed to Jesus, the Messiah. They pointed to Jesus, God's son. They pointed to one who would come and be the savior of the world. They pointed to one who would come and through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Why? Because he gave his life for the sins of the world so that all could be saved, and they're both missing that. Here's the sad part. Islam is a religion that believes in sin, but it has no savior. It has no savior. You say, well, what about... Uh, what about Muhammad? Isn't he the savior? No, he's not the savior. He's a prophet. They never say that he's the savior. It is a religion that believes in sin and in the condemnation that sin brings, but there's no savior. If you're going to be saved in Islam, you have to save yourself. You have to do it by, by performing enough good works, by performing enough good deeds and avoiding enough bad ones. And it's a worthy thing to to make the attempt to avoid the bad and to do the good, but you can't save yourself doing that. Scripture makes that so clear, doesn't it? By works of the law shall no one be saved. So you've got a religion there that believes in sin, but it has no Savior. What about Judaism? Here you have a Messianic movement that has for centuries been looking for a Messiah, and they still don't have one. They have no Messiah. They have no Savior. And so the majority of them have even given up, even talking about a Messiah or looking for a Messiah. But there are, are those true believers who continue to think, no, the Messiah is still going to come. Why do they think that? Because they didn't see him when he came. They didn't recognize him when he did come. So on the one hand, you have a religion that believes in sin but has no Savior. On the other hand, you have a religion that believes in a Messiah but it has no Messiah and has no Savior. They both missed the point, and they missed it badly. Islam says that Jesus is not the Son of God. He's merely a prophet. They honor him as a prophet, but he's not God's Son. He's not the Savior of anybody, Islam says. He did not die on the cross. That's dogma with them. They, they uh, emphasize that. He did not die on the cross. To say that God has a Son, they say, is blasphemy. So they don't believe what you and I believe at all, and they say that he is the Savior of no one. I'll never forget when I was on that panel back in 2002, one of the last questions that was asked of us was the significance of the religious leaders in each of the three groups to the other groups. They were asking about Jesus. They asked me, who, who is Jesus according to the Christian understanding? And I tried to explain to them briefly what Scripture says about Jesus as God's Son, the Savior of the world, the Messiah of Israel, and, and the Savior of all. They went to the uh, imam, the Muslim imam, and asked him, what's the significance of Jesus in Islam? And they said, oh, Jesus is great. He's a, he's a prophet. We honor him as a great prophet. They came to the rabbi, and they said, 
What is the significance of Jesus to Judaism? And I'll never forget what he said. He said, he's irrelevant. He's irrelevant to us. And you could just almost hear God weeping to hear one of the chosen people say that God's own son, the Messiah, was irrelevant. But they would say he's not God's son, that he did not rise from the dead, that he's not a Messiah, that he's not the Savior of anybody. They're both missing the point. Genesis 12.3 says, Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, speaking to Abraham. And so the covenant began with Abraham, and it continued through his descendants, and then, and then it flowed out to all nations. What was Israel's role? Israel was to be a channel through whom the blessings of God were going to flow from Abraham down to Isaac and to his 12 tribes and from them on out through the rest of the world and then through Jesus, through the coming of Jesus to, to the whole world. Think about that. The whole world, everybody who would ever live is going to be blessed through Jesus Christ. That was the idea, that they were to be that channel. The ultimate goal was to bring blessing to all, not, not just Jews and Muslims, but to, but to all nations and the promise of the land you see was just one step along the way that's all that was that was just a step along the way God never said I'm going to give you that land and and that that land is going to be that's going to be it that's the be all and end all this is what history is all about is you occupying the land that's what a lot of folks are saying today that's the goal of history is for the Jewish people to reoccupy the land that simply is not true it may be their goal, but it is not now, and it never was God's goal. It was just a step along the way. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a promise to one of Abraham's descendants, King David. You remember that David wanted to build a house for the Lord. David had built himself a fine house, but the ark of God was still in the tent. It was still in the tabernacle. And David got the idea of what he needed to do was build a house for the Lord. And so he was going to build a, a temple. And he told this to Nathan the prophet. And Nathan said, well, God is with you in all that you do. Uh, translation, go for it. Thought it sounded like a great idea. But that night God spoke to Nathan. And he said, no, this is not the plan. Here's what I want you to go tell David. I want you to go tell David, I never asked you to build me a house. Don't forget who made who king. You didn't make me God. I made you king. And moreover, I'm going to build a house for you, says the Lord. But he wasn't talking about a building. He was talking about a lineage. He said, I'm going to make a house for you, and I'm going to put one of your sons on the throne, and, and he will reign on that throne forever. Now, if you read 2 Samuel 7 carefully, you'll see that some of the things in there perfectly match the life of King Solomon, David's son. Some of those things perfectly match that. For one thing, it says, when he sins, I will chastise him. And Solomon sinned, and God did chastise him. But he also said that his throne will endure forever, and Solomon's throne did not endure forever. His throne did not outlast him. And God said, your son, speaking to David, is going to be my son. And so all of a sudden, you begin to think, 
He's talking about somebody other than Solomon. He's talking about somebody further down the line. He's talking about somebody who's going to be king forever. And that's the birth of the hope of a Messiah. That's where that whole idea comes from. 2 Samuel chapter 7, that he is the anointed one. And that's what the New Testament tells us, is that that promise to David was fulfilled in David's greater son, Jesus, and his throne is forever, and he is the Messiah that was promised. He is the anointed one. That's what the word Messiah means. And the New Testament tells us that Jesus, the Messiah, fulfilled all of those promises. You remember how the New Testament starts out? Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. You know that part. It's the part you never read. It's that genealogy, you know, about who begat, who begat, who begat, who. You know, 17 verses of that. And we, we look at that sometimes. We think, what a strange way to start the New Testament. What a strange way to begin the, mes the message of Jesus with this genealogy that, that nobody really wants to read, but we ought to read it. Matthew 1 and verse 1 says, this is the book of genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You know what Matthew is telling us there? He's telling us that Jesus fulfilled the promises that God had made in his covenant to David, 2 Samuel 7, and the promises that he'd made to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 15 and 17 and on, on and on through the book of Genesis. He is the fulfillment of all of those. And then you have that genealogy to show that connectedness that he is in fact, he is in fact descended from David. He is in fact descended from Abraham. He fulfilled the promises of God to both. He's not just Israel's Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. And that's why the Gospel of Matthew comes to its great conclusion in 28 verses 18 through 20. When Jesus tells the disciples, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the close of the age. Go and make disciples of all the nations. You see, there's the fulfillment of the promise. Go and make disciples of all the nations. And so you have New Testament writers such as Paul who pick up on that, and this is what they say about Jesus as a fulfillment. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the time was right, he says, God sent his Son into the world, born of a woman, talking about the virgin birth of Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, and to redeem those even who were not under the law. And listen to this beautiful verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. All the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. In Ephesians 1, verses 9 and 10, he says that God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This was God's plan forever. It's always been his plan 
that through Jesus, he was going to unite all things in him, draw all people to himself through the message of the cross of Jesus. And then there's that beautiful verse, two verses in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Many and various ways God spoke of old through, to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. That's the hope of Christians. Listen, folks, our hope is not focused on a piece of real estate somewhere in the Middle East. It's not focused on a piece of real estate anywhere. It's not even focused on this earth. Our hope is focused on being forever in the presence of God in heaven. That's what we're after. And all this other stuff is missing the point. All this other business is just confusion. And we don't want to be part of that confusion. We want to try to cut through that confusion and help people see that when their sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus, then they become one of the chosen people. They become an heir. Not of a piece of real estate in the Middle East or anywhere else. But they become an heir of eternal life in the presence of God. Neither Judaism nor Islam has anything that compares with that. They don't even claim to. And they don't. Only our faith in Christ Gives us that hope. So the most tragic thing about the Middle East conflict is all the tragedies that there are. But the most tragic thing about them is they're focused on things that have nothing to do with what God really desires. They're focused on things that are not what God is interested in. What God is interested in is in drawing every person on this earth to himself through the blood of his Son, Jesus Christ. And that's not a nationalistic thing. You don't come to God because you're one nation or the other, because you're descended from one ancestor or another. You come to God because you make the personal decision that you're going to follow Jesus. You come to God and become his child and become one of his people because you say, yes, I believe that about him. I believe that he is God's son. I believe that he did die for my sins. And I'm ready to turn away from those sins and follow Jesus and I'm ready to be baptized into union with him because I want to live with him forever. And I know that through living with him forever, I will be forever in the presence of God. And I know that that, that is the one thing that God wants more than anything for me. That's what he wants more than anything for you. What do you want this morning? Do you want to worry about real estate? Do you want to worry about wars and conflicts? Or do you want to have your hope focused in on life eternal in the presence of the God who made you? If you're ready to follow.